0: Hello everyone, this is Arna Agrawal
1: and this is Vidhan Gittani, bringing to you Climate Crew.
0: A limited edition webinar where we interview experts from around the globe on the topic of environment conservation and its relation with the United Nations Sustainable Development
1: Goals. Today we have with us Mr. Arjun Kamdar who will be discussing goal number 11, sustainable cities and communities.
0: Mr. Kamdar is a naturalist uh, currently working towards his master's degree in wildlife conservation and biology in the National. Center for Biological Sciences in Bangalore. His interest in wildlife goes back to his days in the Dune School, where he roamed the campus in search of snakes and other reptiles and amphibians. Doing that opened a whole new world for him, and now he is giving talks and raising awareness about important conservation issues all over India. Now uh, he has been an integral part of the protests against the Dibangwali Dam in northeast India, and has been constantly working towards nature conservation and spreading awareness about this same. Welcome to the interview, Mr. Kamdari.
1: Hi,
2: thank you. Good to be here.
1: So uh, to start us off, I'd like to mention that uh, even I live in the part of part of the country in West Bengal. And as a bird enthusiast, I've been actively visiting uh, various bird hotspots around the region. So my visits have made me realize, and it's not only but even the residents of villages around such locations have noticed this gradual decline in the number of species and the overall species count in um, The regions each year. So given your passion for wildlife conservation and protection, I'm sure you must agree too. And so what are the underlying causes for such stark decrease and what can we do to bring back what has been lost?
2: So I think that's a really good observation, you know, and this is you've seen unanimously across the globe with the majority of the species decreasing in both uh, in abundance as well as in their range. Uh, While very few, a handful of species are increasing, you know, like um, the commensal species, which are uh, benefiting from the degradation that's taking place, for example, crows and and the like. (coughs) So one of the... um, Well, let me start off with what you can do for this. So there are several ways in, you know, in which you can help, um, you know, bounce, help populations of any species bounce back, which is One is to arrest the threat that is posed to it, which is causing the decline, which is, you know, the root cause. And the others can be symptomatic causes as well. Now, both of these need to work hand in hand. You know, just addressing the root cause alone will not help um, the bird populations, for instance, bounce back. It requires a good amount of hand holding as well. (coughs) So, yes. So, um, for instance, the first thing we can do is uh, help to help native birds is to keep... um, the threats to them indoors, which is cats. So this is a little understudied, particularly in part of, in this part of the world, but elsewhere across the North America, uh, North American landscape and across the islands of Australia and New Zealand, they found that feral cats, domestic cats, which we have tons of in the country as well, are causing a massive decline uh, in these bird populations. And the argument, of course, would be, oh, but birds have always been there and so have cats. But cats are subsidized by, you know, the human garbage dumps, etc. So their population has increased a lot more. And uh, they then hunt indiscriminately on whatever they can find. So that not only includes birds, but reptiles, amphibians, etc., etc. So one is to, you know, keep these indoors. So these are more of the symptomatic causes. The others um, are, of course, (coughs) which are more, uh, you know, chronic in nature, more long term in nature, which is to plant native trees. Uh, You know, so that's essential. So there has been a paradigm shift in the trees that uh, we once, you know, were found in cities and um, and the ones that are now found. So historically, and this is something that Dr. Harini Nagendra, who's guiding my uh, project on human-elephant coexistence in Assam. So she's extensively worked on this, on sustainability of the so-called smart cities in the country. And she said, and she gives a really interesting example, which is... (coughs) That earlier, when uh, in his- historically and traditionally, we as Indians would plant uh, functionally very relevant and very utilitarian trees on our sidewalks and around us. You know, so that would mean jamun, um, tamarind, jackfruit, mango, um, and ficus species. So that means people and banyan, which are considered keystone species as well. You know, so they help populations of birds, particularly, subsist through the leaner months because they are fruiting during the leaner months when all the other trees aren't. So this is what we historically, you know, grew. But then, with the, the colonial stuff and the British guys coming in, they started planting uh, aesthetically beautiful trees, and these were exotic, which are really pretty. You know, I mean, if you've seen the, you know, huge broad walks of Bangalore, which has rain trees, or the copper pods, the beautiful copper pods of uh, Bombay, or the gulmohar, and even the eucalyptus. So these were all lined, but these are pretty to look at, but they're functionally pretty useless. For birds. So right now, what we can do is aid this transition back to these functionally relevant species. And the other, which is like an overarching uh, solution in some sense, is um, that we need to really make an appeal uh, and make ourselves heard. You know, so we've got to rally, so inform, organize, mobilize. You know, so we've got to take the code in our hands. We've got to take the ball in our hands. And such local stuff is not you know, too far. And that's what we've come because earlier when I was, you know, a few years ago, when I was just getting into this, I felt that this is just such a big problem. How are we ever going to, you know, manage to solve it? But it seems that, you know, with the right uh, places and working consistently, you know, speaking to say the ward members, the MLAs, it's their mandate to ensure the sustainability of these cities, you know, so Putting an additional pressure on them, making demands from the citizens, informing people about you know this because I mean I used to feel really happy when I used to look at these rain trees and flowers just before the monsoon, but now realizing that this is functionally quite useless makes me really rethink my thing. So you know informing people and there are several ways that you can do this you know with your own communities where you live. So that's where you know it can start from a grassroots uh, level. So, yeah.
0: So, uh, carrying on this uh, kind of idea of uh, form or what we perceive would be functional, and what actually is functional, right? Uh, we we should consider talking about uh, the Debang Valley Dams and right. uh, the Etlen dams, right? right? So. Uh, so uh, sustainability often necessitates the consideration of private, social, and opportunity costs. So uh, when we are considering projects such as the dibangari Dam, we must carefully look at the effect it has on the different stakeholders in terms of the cost, right? And uh, the dam is projected to generate about 2,880 megawatts of electricity, which would really help reduce the nation's carbon footprint by a very large amount. And uh, what are the reasons behind uh, the opposition that the dam is uh, you know, getting? And which stakeholders are being affected by the construction? What Absolutely. are the underlying
2: effects? Of- That's a really, really good point. So um, the dam, first, firstly, this is, I think, 3097 megawatts. The dam that you're talking about is the Dibang Multipurpose Dam, which is this, uh, to be built on the same river. So this is another dam. That is the uh, India's second largest dam. And the dam we're talking about the italian dam is india's largest dam it's proposed to be on the same river so the first point that you raised was about reducing carbon costs which uh in initially made sense you know looking at hydropower as a renewable and uh, a green source of energy but now after so many years of it being implemented it seems that it is renewable yes but it's not really green so for this we don't think uh, that this is really going to reduce the carbon footprint because it's going to cause the loss of 280,000 trees for sure, old growth trees, uh, you know, a huge amount of uh, forest. It's going to submerge a lot of land. And uh, well, in terms of say carbon, it might be, you know, debatable. But what is interesting to note is that it's not only the carbon that's the problem. It's also when you submerge such a piece of land, uh, the, the rotting vegetation uh, releases um, CH4, which is methane, which is Several fold, I think 20 fold, 25 fold more um, greenhouse than carbon dioxide. So, you know, in that sense, it's really not going to be a a great idea. And I don't think that our uh, EVS textbooks reflect this yet. But uh, this is really not as green as it was made out to be because when the discourse about, um, you know, renewable sources of energy came about 25, 30 years ago, which is uh, since then it's been coming forth. It made somewhat sense, you know, because we didn't really understand it. It seemed way better than coal, which it still probably is. But right now, wind energy and solar energy have gone miles ahead in terms of efficiency, in terms of economies, I mean, economies of scale. So everything, you know, that is far, far ahead. So there's some really good economic analysis done on this also, which says that in order for this to be profitable or even barely keep itself afloat, the government will need to subsidize it by some absurd amount of thousands of crores, you know. So that is crazy. As for the stakeholders that are affected, there are several, several stakeholders. One is, of course, the local community, the Idu Mishnis, who are so culturally and inter uh, and so intertwined with the forest that they live in. Oh, before I uh, you know go on, I must say that the local opinion is divided. So there are some people who are in support of the dam, and a good amount of them, a majority probably, are against it. So. Uh, it's always important to mention that you know there are both sides to it and yeah so one is of course the local people then is the biodiversity you know so this is in this is a global biodiversity hotspot so it's in that 2.6 percent of the earth's surface that houses like you know a majority of um, the earth's species 60-70 percent something like that so it's massive in terms of that and this uh, has a very strong e- ecological and geological basis because this is the region at the northeasternmost tip of India, which has three biogeographic realms, which is three different types of fauna that have evolved, you know, uh, evolutionary very distinctly overlapping in a geographical space, which is, you know, the Indo-Malayan, the Oriental, which is from Southeast Asia. And there is the Palearctic, which is from the, uh, the high altitude of the Himalaya. So all of these are culminating here. And therefore it is just bustling with life, you know, and many of these species are found nowhere else on the planet. So, from a wildlife perspective too. And of course, uh, the other major stakeholders in terms of sheer volume also is the people that live downstream. So this is not a project that we're opposing solely on biodiversity, solely on people, solely on culture, economic. It's also from a very existential perspective. And this is actually, these are the words that uh, I've not used. This is a letter that was sent to the ministry through the Ministry of Tribal Affairs just yesterday 26 June by a hundred odd people from the Dibang Valley uh, local Idu Mishmi saying that this is not solely you know ecological blah 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 it is an existential question for us because it's such a seismically active zone which has in the past seen such devastating earthquakes In uh, 19, in 1897 there was a really bad earthquake Unfortunately, we don't have enough data to see the implications of that. But then again, there was uh, an earthquake uh, of 8.7 on the Richter scale in 1950. And that um, wiped off entire villages. So I met uh, a shaman there, an old priest. And he was telling me that, you know, I remember this earthquake. And he was really old by the time, you know. So he was like, I can't remember the date. But I do remember that it was uh, somewhere in the 1950s. And I was eating baby corn which means it must have been somewhere around the monsoon, you know, somewhere around August or something. And that earthquake came and it wiped off an entire village. And he couldn't even, when he went back to that mountain, you know, his friend's village, he couldn't even see the village and he couldn't even say bye to his friends. I mean, there was nothing found. It was just wiped clean. Very similar to the Kedarnath catastrophe. So from a natural hazards point of view, this is a pretty disastrous, uh, this is a disastrous project. It's seismically very active. It's prone to a moraine, uh, a moraine uh, burst, you know, uh, which is a geo geological uh, form. And uh, when that burst is what happened, uh, a similar thing that what happened in Kedarnath, where there was that dam, uh, I mean, there was that natural dam-like structure, you know, a lake which burst along with a cloud burst, and that's when you know we had that massive devastating thing in 2013. From school, actually, we went and did some relief work also at the time, so we really saw that. Uh, the devastation of that first hand and that you know still gives me goosebumps to imagine that we will willfully do something like that again it's it's absolutely crazy so
0: yeah. Right. So borrowing uh, from what you said so one of the key stakeholders have been the indigenous people who are being displaced by the construction of the dam and uh, it is really disheartening to see this as you mentioned and uh, we realize that this is not just a local or a national problem it's happening at a global scale. Uh, Indigenous people have been suffering through institutional discrimination in India. Like you mentioned, uh, while the Khidarnath catastrophe, it was disheartening, it was wrong. It at least got some sort of media coverage, whereas uh, we literally have to do investigative work to find out what happened in 1950 to those uh, dam workers and what is happening to the villages. So uh, I feel that there's a lot of institutional discrimination in India and even in developed countries such as Canada. and. Uh, This creates a sort of cultural gap and even moves to destroy our local and cultural heritage. What do you think we can do to, uh, you know, kind of alter this? And what
2: do you think we can do to uh, avoid this? I think that's a really, really good point. You know, about (coughs) culture. So before we delve into this, let's uh, let's you know, thresh out the reason why we say culture is important. You know, I mean yeah it's great and all of that but in the face of say development in face of starvation face of devil i mean you know infrastructure and all of that is that something we really want and so far from here we do have empirical evidence that this is something that is really essential because this is what embodies the people this is what the people are you know you cannot uh take um culture away from people they are one in such a landscape particularly in such landscapes and you know these things have uh, evolved over several centuries to be what they are today, uh, particularly in, in the Mishmi Hills, you know, where there is a set of uh, really strict social taboos, uh, which kind of ensure that sustainability is maintained, that, you know, the resources are well balanced. In For instance, they take uh, tigers to be their brother, you know, tigers are a keystone species, so you don't hunt it, and that kind of manages itself during... Um, say social functions you don't hunt but and during hunting time you don't do any social stuff so you know there is this there is this demarcation of <coughs> of uh, space and and resources so that's why it's important now what you've said and what you mentioned uh, about you know institutional uh oppression it's uh downright true you know uh and i think that uh, once you know now that the ball is in motion, uh, is in motion, and people are speaking about this, raising the voice, I think we've got to really capitalize on this and and thresh out a more equitable society. Right now, with these projects, you know, for the for instance, the dam, it's. Uh, it's given a lot of promises to people, you know, saying that you'll get healthcare infrastructure and all. And those may be fair and those may be true. But the point is, you don't need an ecologically destructive and disastrous thing that threatens the life of everyone downstream uh, to grant the basic necessities that any democracy should be granting, regardless, right? So here, only a small faction of elites are going to benefit at the expense of. So many people. So I think uh, with people like us, you know, young people, and that is something that we've seen across the Northeast, particularly with the Dibang Valley movement, also, where the youth of Dibang Valley, the Mishmi youth, and people of Dibang Valley have come together and have said, "No, this is not going to pass." This is, you know, writing letters, banding themselves together, putting out information, and we're just facilitating them. We're just amplifying their voice, you know, because for so much time they've just been spoken at or spoken to you know never spoken with so we're just amplifying their voices and most hearteningly I think and something that is a big source of encouragement you know is the Dehing Patkai movement. So the there are these coal fields in Dehing Patkai uh, wildlife sanctuary which is in the lower elevations of Assam Uh, and (coughs) there there was some uh, some work uh, you know going on uh, about uh, you know illegal mining and this and that and uh, 19 youth organizations across uh, the Northeast came together and stood in solidarity and um, the authorities had to suspend all mining activities, review what they've done and make amends as well. So that's something great. In fact, even recently with uh, the EIA, the Environmental Impact Assessment um, you know, notification that there's a draft notification where the government is planning to dilute it even more and make it easier for industries to get away with uh, wanton destruction. Uh, a bunch of student unions, I think close to 50 student unions, and, uh, you know, uh, university, uh, university boards banded together and, you know, put out a statement of solidarity saying that this is not okay with us. So I think, uh, you know, it's it's an age-old cliche, and I'm sure everyone's heard it, you know, that, oh, if trees could vote or if animals could vote, then we wouldn't see the destruction that we are. So I think uh, there is um, some sense in that, you know, and we've got to put the votes behind uh, this, you know, we've got to speak in the language that speaks to the people making the decision. So we've got to put our votes and our voices behind these, because at the end of the day, it's us who are going to bear the consequences, you know, right now, it's, uh, it seems crazy, you know, it's like some, it's like these, uh, you know, corporations and in industries and elites uh, you know, drink, and we suffer the hangover. So it's just absolutely crazy. Uh, I mean, I have uh, attended
1: a few of webinars before and I have heard about the Dibang Valley, uh, whatever has been happening there, but right now it just it's just surprises me, awfully surprises me, as you work closely with them and what is happening with them. As you said, they have this existential crisis if the
2: dam will be made or it will not be made. Just Absolutely. And this is not just one dam or two dams, you know, these are not only two of the largest dams. There are 18 dams proposed through the Dibang Valley. So yeah, so that's that's what our fight is symbolic of—not just this one dam, you know, but about this entire thing. And you know, there is this uh, there is this idea that you're supposed to have free, informed, and prior consent, right, before any of these uh, any of these hearings take place. It has to be a, in a democratic manner. Mm-hmm. But all of that has gone out the window, you know. I mean, I've spoken to several people there, and some of them, one of them, had his daughter shot at. Because he was voicing uh, his, uh, you know, dissent against the dam and was, you know, leading the protest and the movement against it. So, uh, yeah, and so people, you know, even then, and this, uh, this, the firing happened by the paramilitary at a bunch of unarmed people and every, at the, at the Durga Puja Mandal, I'm sure, Vedant, you can understand I how did. big it is, yeah. you know, so yeah. the Durga Puja Mandal uh, at the Pandal, they opened fire unarmed people and I think of the eight or nine casualties five were college students and four were school students so it was that bad and even then when the protest didn't break and when the resistance didn't break this was with the Dibang multi-purpose dam uh, then the Maoist card was brought out you know they said that the Maoists are backing this anti-development thing so uh, then we will have to enforce the Armed Forces Special Powers Act the Yavspa, which is really dreaded in the northeast, that is what Idiom Sharmila was fighting for and fasting for several years against, um, you know, in in Manipur. So that was what finally quelled, you know, their resistance. So this is, you know, something that would be unheard of in mainland India, but because it is in a far distant corner, it seems to, you know, pass. And you know, it's not just that the implications of this will be local; these will definitely be downstream, as we've seen innumerable times in uh, the past, uh, in the Northeast itself, you know, there have been dams in, uh, say, the Sumansari Dam. The guard wall just caved away. Everyone had to be evacuated. The Nipko Dam, again, had to be a similar story. The Beki River in Borpeta, again, of uh, Western Assam. So uh, the instances are innumerable. You know, dams in these areas, in these ecological and geologically fragile areas, are not a good idea. Period, and we have alternatives which are economically, ecologically so much better. Why not? You know, so
1: yeah. just shakes me to the core thinking about. I mean, it is so much more deep than just a dam being built and people protesting it. There's open, there's being open fires in the Rabuja pandals and all those things. It's just, and it, it just. Think about the media coverage. I mean, uh, me staying in Siliguri, I don't think anybody from my family knows about this dam. Because there, I don't think there has been enough media coverage um, considering yeah. what has happened there. Absolutely. It to the core. So uh, similarly, another as we spoke about the upcoming biggest dam in India, the Italian dam, is projected to be built in Arunachal. And as we all know, of course, Arunachal uh, is an environmentally diverse state with uh, various endemic flora and fauna which need conservation and protecting life amid such circumstances. Now, we know the environmental impact of this dam, as you mentioned, it's very direct. But how do you feel this dam will affect the cultural heritage of it? Of oh, the
2: so yes. <laughs> Well, this is in uh, particular the Dibang Valley, which is home largely to the Idu-Mishmi tribal people. So, I mean, yeah, so they they are the Idu-Mishmis and um, well, from my time there, I feel that they are uh, so intertwined with the forest, you know, their culture, their religion, all of that is just so intertwined with the forest that you cannot isolate one from the other. Uh, For instance, you know, they have this semi-feral, semi-domesticated animal, a large bovine that looks like a gore. It's called the mithun, which plays an integral role in all of their uh, cultures, you know, in all of the festivals, in marriages, functions, all of that. You need to have a mithun. And these are left to roam on these forested slopes. With this uh, coming in, this will cease to exist, you know. And uh, you can't imagine, say, an Idu society without midtown so that's just one example you know and this is several so for instance if uh if um, you know you if somebody slips on a rock and dies then a particular grass needs to be used to finish off the you know the last rites and all of that so that that will also you know obviously cease to exist plus there will be an influx of labor you know of of uh, labor several fold more than the population of the edus and through these i mean through other dams that we've seen in in arunachal we know that this brings in a lot of crime a lot of wildlife hunting uh, a lot of sex work you know a lot of these vices that are typically associated with uh, um growth in spurts without any you know check and balance so (coughs) so that's something that needs to be looked at
1: Right. Uh, so I think this is it. This has been an amazing session with you, Mr. Kamala. We hope to have such amazing interviews with other interviewees. We'll be covering the rest of the Sustainable Development Goals in the upcoming webinars. Uh, we thank you for your time and for everything we've learned from you. Thank you so much. Nice.
2: thank you to help. Happy to have you. Good.
1: Thanks, guys.